Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. Today we'll be discussing to reform healthcare, don't increase taxes, cut them. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, today we have two of Cato's healthcare scholars with us, Michael Tanner and Michael Cannon. They are the co-authors of Healthy Competition, which uh, is this book. It's the best book I've ever read on healthcare. It um, summarizes the... Uh, major points for why um, a, a system that's responsive to the needs of consumers is superior to um, a more centrally directed one, and it also tells how we can get from here to there. Um, we also have five chapters in the Cato Handbook for Policymakers that deal with healthcare. It's online at cato.org handbook, and uh, you might think of it as the what would Canon do if he were healthcare czar for an administration or so. Um, and then we also have the new web feature, healthcare.cato.org, which is basically a clearinghouse for all of the information that our scholars have been putting together uh, with regard to the current debate about healthcare reform in the country. So with that, our first speaker today is Michael Tanner. Uh, Michael Tanner heads research in a variety of domestic policy areas with particular emphases on healthcare reform, social welfare policy, and social security. His most recent book, Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution, chronicled how the Republican Party's shift away from its limited government roots led to electoral defeat in 2006 and predicted that without reform, the 2008 elections would be similarly bad for Republicans, and he was right. His other books include Healthy Competition, as I mentioned, The Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in Civil Society, and A New Deal for Social Security. Before joining Cato in 1993, Tanner served as Director of Research at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and as Legislative Director for the American Legislative Exchange Council. Michael Tanner. Well, thank you very much, and thank you folks for coming out on a Friday uh, when you could be playing hooky and getting a head start on the weekend, so we do appreciate that, that you're here. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, many of you will remember, uh, I spent a lot of time up here in rooms like this talking to you folks a couple of years ago about Social Security reform. Uh, I was heavily involved in Cato's efforts to allow younger workers to privately invest a portion of their Social Security payroll tax through personal accounts. Uh, and at the time, one of the criticisms that I had to deal with in almost every forum. I mean, every time I was up here, when I was on TV, and everywhere I went, someone would say to me, what about this terrible $1 trillion transition cost that you'd incur if you were going to go to personal accounts? Why, over the next 40 years, uh, it could cost the government a trillion dollars. Where are you ever going to come up with that kind of money? And now, of course, we see in the headlines that getting the cost of the health care bill down to $1 trillion over the next 10 years is considered a legislative triumph, and that, uh, therefore, we shouldn't have any worries about it. <clears throat> uh, I want to, regardless of whether or not it's a triumph or a major crisis, uh, you're still going to have to find some way to pay for this bill. And what I'd like to do is talk very briefly about uh, one of the, about some of the options that are being considered for uh, how to pay for this and what the the impact of those options might be. Uh, I realize I'm engaged here, uh, and one of the reasons I'm going to be so short is that I'm engaged in something of a 
exercise in legislative mind reading. Uh, none of us actually know what the pay-fors in these bills are actually going to be. Uh, in fact, uh, sitting on my desk back at the Cato Institute right now, I have just over 1,200 pages, actually about 1,400 pages of bills uh, from the, uh, both the HELP bill and the uh, bill out of the House. Uh, and there's no pay-fors anywhere in them. <laughs> so we have about 1,400 pages of legislation telling how they're going to spend money and zero pages right now of how they're actually going to pay for any of that spending. But still, let's try to indulge in some ideas for how they might possibly pay for this based on uh, the options paper that the Senate Finance Committee put out, based on a number of leaks to various news organizations, the always reliable Capitol Hill source. Uh, we can start first with the Senate. Uh, I understand, first, the Senate considered uh, such options as a tax on bald health care economists, but uh, figuring that that would leave them with far more money than they possibly needed, uh, <laughs> since we are in surplus, uh, they decided to move on to some other ideas. They have talked uh, about the idea of putting a tax on employer-provided health insurance, uh, not on everybody's employer-provided health insurance. If they did that, it actually would yield a, a great deal of money, about $2.3 trillion over the next 10 years. <clears throat> but nobody expects them to actually tax all employer-provided benefits. Uh, that would almost certainly engender a tax revolt and, and endanger the health care reform bill. So there's a couple of other options that are generally considered to be on the table. One is that you cap the, uh, the benefit levels that are exempt from taxation and you tax above a certain level of benefits. Uh, for example, uh, employers contribute on average about $8,800 per worker, uh, and so that if you were to say cap the tax exemption at that average and only tax plans that were had an employer contribution above $8,800, that would be one option. If you did that, uh, rather than the $2.3 trillion, by the way, that would yield about $165 billion over the next 10 years. So as soon as you start going into these caps, you dramatically reduce the amount of revenue that you're going to get from the tax. Uh, another way to do this uh, that's I've been talked about is instead of capping at the, uh, the level of the benefits is to cap at income level and say that only the, uh, the exclusion would go away for people who earn over $200,000 a year or for a family or $100,000 for a worker or something along those lines. You also, again, get down very quickly into the $150, $160 billion 10-year revenue window for that. Third option is to do both, both capped for income and capped for, uh, for size of policy. Uh, that hits the fewest number of people and therefore would likely be politically the most palatable. It also yields the least amount of income, uh, cutting the income well down below the $100 billion level. Now, as this is discussed, uh, a couple of things to, to bear in mind. Uh, well. Number one is that you ha the potential, if you go down the income scale, if you don't cap it, of hitting a significant number of middle and low income workers. About half of all the people who receive employer-provided health insurance have incomes under $75,000 a year. You can see that little chart over there. And in fact, significant numbers have, in have incomes well below that. Uh, you get all the way down to about 4.5 million people 
who would get hit with income with taxes uh, below twenty thousand dollars a year in income if you taxed all the way up. So that's why they're looking at these caps because otherwise you're going to have a significant number of middle and low income people who would get hit. Uh, one other thing I just want to mention in regards to this employer provided taxes because I, I think it's being somewhat misplayed in the media sometimes. Uh, not that that would ever happen. But there's a lot of discussion sort of making an equivalence between uh, this tax on employer-provided health insurance benefits and the type of provision that many uh, conservatives or libertarians have talked about over the years, uh, uh, that John McCain talked about in his campaign and that was attacked by, uh, by then-candidate uh, Obama. Uh, <coughs> the, the idea that free marketers have often said that there should be some sort of tax on employer-provided health insurance benefits. And that partially is true. And in fact, I've actually written that myself. But that's only half of the equation. When folks on the free market side of this have talked about it, what they've suggested is the tax on employer-provided health insurance benefits offset by some sort of tax break on the individual side that would be roughly equivalent, either a standard deduction, which is what President Bush proposed, a credit, which is what John McCain proposed. But the idea was that for the vast majority of workers, they would be held harmless or we'd even see a tax reduction overall. The goal then was not to raise revenue, but to change the link between employer-provided and individual uh, insurance so that there would be incentives for workers to have personal portable insurance rather than to continue to get insurance through their employer. Uh, the proposals we're seeing now are not about changing health care policy, not about moving away from an employer-based health care system, but rather a simple revenue-raising device. And they should not be, uh, I think, uh, made equivalent. Second proposal, as I mentioned, was the idea of dealing with uh, health savings accounts and flexible uh, spending accounts. The proposals uh, that I'm hearing particularly talk about the idea of ending health savings accounts. They would not do away with the current accumulations in the accounts, but they would make future contributions no longer tax-free. So you'd essentially eliminate future contributions to health savings accounts. About 8 million people, 8 million American workers currently have health savings accounts, and interestingly, they skew particularly to lower and middle income people. About 83% of all health savings account users are in lower, lower middle, or middle income households. Uh, and you can see some distributions over here on, on the chart for that, uh, about the, uh, where they fall in terms of the median uh, wage, lower, middle, and middle income people are the most likely to have health savings accounts. So a, doing away with health savings accounts would be a tax increase particularly on the, on the middle class. Uh, in addition to this, there's also talk about limiting flexible spending accounts, limiting what, uh, what would be considered tax deductible in terms of, uh, or tax exempt in terms of flexible spending accounts. Uh, these, again, uh, are most likely, the, uh, the accumulation of these, the people most likely to have flexible spending accounts are in the middle income categories. And once again, this would be, end up being a middle income tax increase. Uh, without knowing the specifics on the FSA proposals, we don't have any estimates on the revenue they would raise, but disallowing all future HSA contributions would raise about $11 billion over the next 10 years. It's a paltry amount of money, 
uh, which makes one sus suspect that the interest here is not in simply revenue raising, but actually in killing off uh, health savings accounts, which uh, some uh, people in Congress have never actually approved of. Uh, a third item that's been discussed is making changes to the deductibility of medical expenditures uh, on your income tax. Right now, as you know, you can deduct medical expenditures if they rise above 7.5% of adjusted gross income. There is discussion about raising that to perhaps 10% of adjusted gross income before you could make those deductions. Uh, that, again, would hit people uh, in lower-income households. 73% uh, of the medical deductions currently are taken by people who earn less than $75,000 a year. Uh, in addition, roughly 60% of those who take that deduction are elderly, are senior <coughs> citizens, uh, who would be, so they would be the most likely to be hit. So you'd be hit, and people with high medical expenses, obviously, are more likely to hit them. So what you'd be doing by changing this tax deduction is essentially raising taxes on the elderly, the sick, and the low income. Uh, so we'd wonder about that one. And then, of course, there's also discussion of the idea that we're going to have both a soda tax and a beer tax. Uh, just thought I'd throw this one out in terms of who pays the beer tax, who pays federal alcohol taxes. Low-income people pay several times a higher percentage of, their, of the uh, of this federal uh, excise taxes on alcohol. Uh, it's about 14 times more between you know, a low-income person and a high-income person as a percent of their income that they end up paying in, uh, in federal excise taxes on alcohol. A soft drink tax would have very similar uh, distributions, uh, so this would be clearly be a tax, again, on lower middle income people. Uh, there's also some discussion of corporate taxes. About $210 billion in corporate taxes over 10 years has been suggested by the Obama administration, primarily in limiting uh, various tax breaks to businesses. Um, we can again expect some impact on jobs. We know that some businesses, Microsoft, for example, has already said that if those tax increases uh, passed, they would begin to move a number of their operations offshore. And of course, there have been the Obama administration's proposals to limit the deductibility of home mortgage deductions and charitable contributions for people earning over 200 uh, in the top tax bracket. I think it's aiming at people earning over $250,000 a year. Uh, those have not been favorably received on Capitol Hill and are probably not likely to be included in any proposal. Uh, moving to the House, their bill, of course, costs a lot more than a trillion dollars. Uh, their bill is estimated uh, by a, they haven't got a CBO score, but independent folks have estimated it at about three and a half trillion dollars uh, for that bill. Uh, they are looking, in addition to those proposals, at such things as a payroll tax hike a point-and-a-half payroll tax hike divided between the worker and the, uh, and the employer. But of course, we know that the worker ultimately pays the full cost of that. The possibility of establishing for the first time a value-added tax. And I want to make it clear, you know, value-added tax is often called similar to a sales tax. There's a difference, though. Sales tax is assessed at the register. It's a one-time tax at retail. Value-added tax is put in at every level of production, so it compounds upon itself. Uh, economists would say that in some senses, of course, it doesn't tax consumption, not savings, and that has, has some value in that regard. 
but it's also a hidden tax, unlike a retail sales tax, which you see at the cash register. This is hidden, and it quickly can become a, a simply a pool of money uh, that's available to the government to do almost anything with. Uh, what you're doing is establishing a new tax source that's not necessarily tied to health care. Uh, some people have talked about perhaps a 3% VAT uh, initially. Well, in Europe, if you want to look at the average VAT across uh, European countries, across uh, the EU, for example, the average VAT is around 20%. Uh, so therefore, you have a lot of room for this 3% VAT to grow uh, as a perpetual piggy bank for the, for the federal government uh, out there. And while we say from an economic standpoint, not taxing consumption uh, has benefits over taxing savings or income, uh, administratively setting up a VAT is very complex and uh, is not likely to yield enormous administrative savings. And in fact, uh, it's liable to create its own problems, especially when it's decked onto an income tax uh, that we would still maintain uh, in terms of lost, uh, lost productivity that goes with the tax code. And lastly, there's talk of possibly throwing another income tax surcharge on people earning over a certain amount of money say if you own over 250000 or a million dollars or whatever, we're going to put a 3 or 4% income tax surcharge on top of your income taxes in order to pay, pay for this. Uh, two final caveats as we look at all, all these potential tax hikes. Number one is that even if you add all these tax hikes up in their most likely form, uh, which is basically anything except the full taxation of uh, employer-provided benefits, they don't actually pay for the reform. They don't total as much as the trillion dollars or the three and a half trillion dollars that is being talked about. So therefore, you're going to have some sort of, you're going to have to either have additional taxes or some sort of phantom savings by promising that in the future you will cut spending for Medicare or something, future savings which we never seem to see materialize. <clears throat> and second, the actual cost of health care reform is liable to be far greater than actually projected. Uh, if you look to the past, uh, with the exception, uh, the single exception as far as I'm able to tell of the uh, Medicare prescription drug benefit, all the uh, health care programs have come in at higher costs than originally estimated. Uh, you can go back to Medicare when it was launched, uh, Medicare Part A was projected that by 1990 they said it would cost a whole $9 billion. Uh, in 1990 it actually cost $67 billion, uh, so they missed that one a little bit. Uh, they created a hospital study a subsidy under Medicaid, if you recall, back in 1987, and said it could actually cost as much as $100 million annually. Uh, it's now 11, by 1992, it was up to nine, uh, $11 billion. Uh, slight miss there. Uh, Medicare's home care benefit, added in 1988, was once projected to cost $4 billion uh, within five years. It ended up costing $10 billion. Uh, by that time. And we should also remember that in Massachusetts, which just passed its health care plan, and I have a study out there on Massachusetts and their results, uh, they expected that when they passed it, they said by 2009 it will cost $725 million. Uh, it now costs a billion dollars, so they missed that by a couple of hundred million, about 20 percent uh, overage. Uh, and we should also point out that independent studies of how much it would cost to create universal coverage, by, not by conservative think tanks, but by groups like the Urban Institute, suggest that it would cost a floor, a minimum, of about $2 trillion 
not won in order to get there. And we do note that the Kennedy bill, for all of its trillion-dollar-plus price tag, uh, does not get to universal coverage. And uh, studies have said to get to take that same bill, extend the coverage to everybody, would make that about a $4 trillion bill if you actually followed through on, on the provisions in it. So therefore, what you're looking at is if you're going to pass the health bills as they're talking about and not, as you'll hear from my colleague in just a moment, something more market-oriented, you're talking about a huge tax increase that is going to fall primarily on the middle class. I suggest to you that for what is going to be very bad health care, that's a very bad price tag. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Well, now that we've heard uh, uh, how not to increase taxes, uh, let's find out how to cut them. Um, Michael Cannon is our second speaker. He's the Cato Institute's Director for Health Policy Studies. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee under Chairman Larry Craig, where he advised the Senate leadership on health, education, labor, welfare, and the Second Amendment issues. He holds a bachelor's degree in American government from the University of Virginia, and master's degrees in economics and law and economics from George Mason University. Michael Cannon. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, Mike. And thank all of you for coming today. Um, we've been hearing uh, for you know several months now, if you've been paying attention to health care reform, that in order to reform health care, we're going to need a trillion dollars or more uh, to, uh, to, to reform the system, to, to expand coverage, and a big part of that is going to have to be higher taxes. Some of that could come from eliminating uh, waste, fraud, and abuse in the healthcare sector right now, but some of that is going to have to come from somewhere, and Mike talked to you about a, a lot of those uh, uh, potential uh, revenue raisers. I think that whole approach is wrong, that uh, we don't need to be, uh, to reform healthcare, we don't need to be increasing taxes, we need to be cutting them. Uh, the, so specifically, what do I mean by cutting taxes? Well, I think that what we need to be doing is uh, leveling the playing field between uh, employer-sponsored insurance and insurance that you buy on your own. Now, what do I mean by that? Currently, there's a huge tax uh, preference in the, in the federal tax code for employer-sponsored insurance. You can buy that with pre-tax dollars. If you go out and buy health insurance on your own, you have to buy that with after-tax dollars. Leveling the playing field between the two, no matter how you do it, uh, or almost any way that you do it, will we'll actually uh, deliver a large tax cut for everybody, for all, uh, or specifically, with a specific reform that I'd like to talk about, uh, you would get a number of uh, additional benefits. You, in it, you would get a tax cut for everybody, all insured workers, uh, a tax cut for workers who purchase their own coverage. You would get a tax cut for the uninsured, and most importantly, with uh, this proposal that I'm going to talk about called large health savings accounts, you'd even get a tax cut for the uninsurable that would help them afford medical care even if they cannot obtain health insurance. And the best part about these approaches, and specifically uh, large health savings accounts, is that the biggest tax cuts would go to the people who need it the most, older <laughs> workers and sicker workers who will have difficulty uh, purchasing insurance. These approaches, moreover, would also deliver all of the benefits that President Obama wants, or almost all of the benefits that President Obama wants out of health care reform, and do it better. You would have fewer uninsured. You would have fewer gaps in coverage. There would be more choices in, the, in health insurance markets and more competition, uh, which would, as the president says he wants to do, keep the insurance companies honest. And you, you could, uh, and 
tax reform could do this without creating new government programs, without increasing government spending, or increasing the deficit, or for that matter, cut, cutting government spending on existing programs. Now, there are, poten there are potential downsides to this approach, but I think those are going to be much smaller than many people suppose. So what, what sorts of tax reforms am I talking about, uh, and how would they deliver the, these benefits that I'm talking about? Well, as I said, any tax reform that levels the playing field between employer-purchased insurance and individually-purchased insurance, and that's re revenue-neutral to the federal government, uh, would, would uh, deliver these sorts of benefits. Now, these tax reforms will include things like tax credits. Uh, Senator McCain proposed a health insurance replacing the current tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance with a universal tax credit uh, during the uh, presidential campaign. Before that, President Bush proposed a uh, replacing the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance with a standard deduction for health insurance. It would be available to everybody regardless of where they purchased their insurance. Those... Um, those, tax, those, those reforms would deliver a, a, a tax cut to, to insured workers, to those who purchase insurance on their own, and to uh, many uninsured workers who would then be able to purchase, uh, or purchase health insurance. There's an issue that came up during the campaign and during the uh, discussion of President Bush's proposal for a sta standard deduction for health insurance, and that is that because the current tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance is unlimited, and this is something that economists have uh, a lot of uh, problems with, all of these tax breaks are limited. They aren't unlimited in the sense that if you keep buying more and more health insurance, uh, it's, it's tax-free at the margin. So there would be this concern about a nominal tax increase for insured workers if you move to any of these uh, other proposals. And uh, that is true. There would be that nominal tax increase, but it would be swamped by a much larger tax cut that I'll talk about in a moment. Now, pro there are a couple of, from my perspective, a couple of additional problems with tax credits and a standard deduction for health insurance. Uh, one of them is that they would not provide tax relief to the uninsurable, and the other is that they would delay, delay that other much larger tax cut that I'm uh, going to talk about in a moment, whereas large health savings accounts would provide all of those benefits of, uh, that you would get from tax credits and a standard deduction while providing that tax cut to the uninsurable and making that other larger tax cut immediate rather than delaying it. So now what I'd like to do is I'd like to explain how these reforms, and particularly large health savings accounts, would deliver that large, health, that large tax cut to everybody and how that would expand coverage, expand choice, and expand competition in insurance markets. If you've ever listened to economists talk about the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance, you've heard this, this sort of – there's a standard analysis that economists do. The, uh, the amount that your employer contributes – and I should use quotation figures when I say that, and I'll uh, get to the reason why in a minute, but the, uh, the amount that your employer contributes to your health benefits is excluded from income and payroll taxes. That means it's never counted in the amounts that are uh, of your uh, compensation, of, of your salary, that's subject to income and payroll taxes. So assume that you, have a, you face a 40% marginal income tax rate. That means your payroll taxes for Social Security and Medicare – are 15 percent, it's actually 15.3, but let's also say you're in the 25 percent income tax bracket. That means that this exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance reduces the effective cost of employer-sponsored insurance for you by 40 percent relative to the cost of buy, buying an identical policy directly from an insurance company on the individual market. That also means that 
Uh, the tax exclusion reduces the cost of employer-sponsored insurance relative to any other use of, of uh, your earnings that you would uh, – uh, or relative to any other use of uh, your after-tax dollars. So as a result, because this tax exclusion makes employer-sponsored insurance relatively less expensive, uh, workers favor employer-sponsored insurance over individual market insurance. They demand more coverage than they would otherwise. Uh, there's, as a result, there's more moral hazard. Uh, because workers are, have more coverage, they tend to consume more medical care, and that drives up insurance premiums. So that's the standard economic analysis of uh, the tax exclusion, and I think it's correct as far as it goes, but it's incomplete. It would be satisfactory if that tax exclusion only applied to – or if it applied to all health insurance, if it applied to uh, health insurance that you purchase on your own, but it only applies to health insurance that your employer purchases, that your uh, – or – even more specifically, the portion of the premium in most cases that is paid by your employer. So in 2008, um, in the employer portion of the average employer-sponsored insurance premium was $4,000 for workers with self-only coverage and $9,000 for workers with family coverage. In aggregate, that means that employers were uh, writing uh, – Checks for 600 or, or this year will write uh, $620 billion worth of checks to provide uh, health benefits to their workers. Now, if there's one thing that, uh, on which economists agree, and there's a recent survey, and 91% of health economists agreed uh, on, on this point, uh, it's that that $620 billion that employers are, uh, are I, I struggle not to use the word contributing because it's not really uh, uh, coming out of their pockets. Uh, that $620 billion in employer uh, uh, premium contributions does not come out of profits. It comes out of workers' wages. It's part of the workers' earnings. And if you think about it, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you're productive, your employer pays you according to your productivity. But if you get health benefits, then your employer is – what your employer does is they reduce your salary by $4,000 or $9,000 in order to pay for those health benefits. And economists will also tell you, and Jason Furman, who's an, uh, an advisor to President Obama, is one of those economists, that if employers weren't providing health benefits to their workers, they would have to return that $4,000 or that $9,000 to their workers, add it to their salaries, because that's what the workers' productivity can command in the marketplace. So to qualify for that exclusion, uh, for, that, for that tax preference, workers have to actually surrender control of a pretty sizable chunk of their earnings, $4,000 or $9,000. So that's nothing to shake a stick at. Now, what's interesting to me about the tax exclusion, the way we talk about it in Washington, is usually when a government policy denies workers control over their earnings, when it separates workers from a, a portion of their earnings, we call that a tax hike. But we call the tax exclusion a tax break, even though it does uh, the very, that, uh, that very same thing. So a common feature of all proposals uh, to achieve tax parity between the employer-sponsored insurance market and the individual market, to give them the same tax treatment, is that over the long run, the labor market would force employers to return that $620 billion to workers. Over the long run, uh, workers would demand that, uh, that they be able to control that money and employers would have to give it to them because that's what the labor market would require them to do. Everyone would essentially, or all insured workers, that is, would essentially get a $4,000 or a $9,000 bump in their salaries. That, that, the, that money the employer used to control would be put under the workers' control. Now, this is a tax cut. Workers are getting to control more of their earnings than they did otherwise. Now, and the best part... Uh, 
I, from my perspective, is that workers with higher health care costs, and these uh, are older, female, obese workers, they would actually get the biggest tax cuts. And here's why. Economists will also tell you that if an insured worker has easily observable health risk factors, if they're older, if they're obese, if they're, if they're female, then their wages tend to fall by more than the average $4,000 or $9,000 to compensate for the added costs that they place on the, uh, on the employer's health plan. So, in fact, they're actually paying uh, – Everyone says that employer-sponsored insurance does a great job of pooling risk. Everyone pays the same premium. Actually, no, it doesn't because those workers with easily observable uh, health risk factors are actually paying more. They're just paying in the form of lower wages rather than higher premiums. Now, with a level playing field between the employer market and the individual market, when labor markets force employers to add that $4,000 or $9,000 to workers' wages, they would actually have to add more to the wages of uh, of those uh, workers with higher health care costs, uh, which means that those workers with higher health care costs would get the biggest tax cuts. Now, there's a, a drawback of, uh, of, of delivering that tax cut with a tax credit or a standard deduction for health insurance or really anything that would level that playing field, even a, a flat tax or, or eliminating the income tax and moving to a value-added tax or, or, or any other tax reforms, is that uh, it would give workers that $4,000 or $9,000 average salary bump, but only over the long term. In the short run, employers don't have to give that money to workers. The labor market hasn't cleared yet. It hasn't forced them to do that. So in the short term, they can pocket that money. As labor markets adjust, they, workers would eventually get that $4,000, $9,000. They could go to another employer that will provide it to them. But you know what? People have to buy insurance in the meantime. And if their employer drops their coverage, then that's a pretty frightening prospect. And I think this was actually a key vulnerability of the McCain tax credit proposal. There was uh, some talk about whether employers would drop health benefits for workers if uh, McCain got rid of the exclu exclusion and replaced it with a tax credit. That's a concern, uh, and it's a very big concern if employers still have the ability to pocket that money rather than give it to workers so that they can purchase health insurance on their own. And I don't think that, uh, that, that the McCain campaign had a very good answer to that, but I think that large health savings accounts do provide a good answer to that. Because uh, unlike, as I mentioned before, unlike the, the tax credit uh, or other approach, large HSAs would make that tax cut more immediate and transparent. Now, how would they do that? And what are large health savings accounts? Well, the idea is this. Large health savings accounts would replace the exclusion and other tax breaks uh, that exist for health-related uses of income, like Mike mentioned, the, uh, the deduction for medical expenses in excess of 7.5% of adjusted gross income, replace all of them with one tax break uh, that mirrors the exclusion as it exists right now, but uh, only for contributions to a large health savings account, to uh, uh, a tax-free account that consumers can use to purchase their medical care or their health insurance with tax-free dollars. What this would do is it would preserve the exclusion, but it would preserve it for money that the workers control rather than money that the employers control. And you would really need to make three changes to health savings accounts as they exist right now to turn them into large health savings accounts. One, increase the contribution limits dramatically so that workers can put all of that four or $9,000 and even a little more into their large health savings accounts. I talk about contribution limits of $8,000 for individuals, $16,000 for workers, but those are just illustrative. Uh, second, Eliminate the insurance requirement that currently exists with health savings accounts. You have to buy a government-defined high-deductible health plan in order to open a health savings account and contribute money to it tax-free. 
get rid of that, and you'll let people, not only will you let people purchase any health plan they want, but you'll also open health, large health savings accounts to the uninsurable so that they will get a tax credit. If you, all right, all right, the same tax break as everyone else. If you tie a tax break to health insurance, then, then you're basically saying the uninsurable don't get a tax break. And third, allow those large HSA funds to be used to purchase health insurance as well as medical expenses. Now, how would this work in practice? If you're a worker, what would, what would, how would this affect you if Congress enacted uh, large health savings accounts? Well, it could go just like this. In November, your employer announces to you that next year you're going to get a $4,000 or $9,000 increase in your salary, above and beyond whatever other raise you were going to get. That's, it, that's in November. Then in December, you tell your employer how much you want to put aside tax-free in your new large health savings account. And it could be that entire $9,000, or you could go all the way up to the contribution limit if it's uh, $16,000 or something like that. And, and that's the money that you would use to pay your health insurance and your medical bills. That's in December. And then on January 1st, if you want, you just remain in your employer's health plan. You just write a check back to him. You can have it all, uh, a direct, what do you call it, an automated withdrawal from your large health savings account like you do to pay a lot of your bills. And you can stay right there on your employer's health plan as if nothing ever happened. Or... If you would prefer, you can purchase a health plan on the individual market, maybe one that provides greater choice of doctors than your employer plan does, maybe one that uh, has lower premiums than your employer plan does, maybe it it's a health plan that practices medicine like the Mayo Clinic, as uh, President Obama wants us all to do. But most any plan that you buy on the individual market will have one important benefit, which is it'll provide you seamless insurance coverage between jobs. So if you lose your job, you don't necessarily lose your health insurance. And then, um, one, and then any money that you uh, don't spend from your large health savings account on, on your employer-sponsored premiums or, or your uh, individual market premiums or uh, out-of-pocket expenses, that money, like with health savings accounts today, remains there and grows tax-free. Now, as I mentioned, this approach provides tax relief to everybody. Insured workers would get a $6 billion tax cut in the first year of, uh, of health, large health savings accounts. Over 10 years, that amounts to about $9 trillion. Uh, it would deliver the same tax break that insured workers currently get to the uninsured, to the uninsurable, and to people who purchase coverage on their own right now. And as I said, the biggest tax cuts would go to older and sicker workers. And most importantly, those tax cuts would be immediate. So, and that, that reduces any dislocation or disruption in people's coverage uh, because employers would have to add that, would add that money to their workers' salaries immediately. Also, these approaches would, all, would, would reduce the number of uninsured. There haven't been any uh, uh, cost estimates or uh, projections of changes in insurance co coverage uh, for large health savings accounts yet. There's legislation that's being drafted. Uh, but these, but similar proposals like a standard deduction, like tax credits, have all uh, been estimated that they would reduce the number of uninsured. A standard dedu deduction by seven million people, according to CBO. Uh, tax credits by 15 million, according to the Lewin Group. And again, the more people that purchase health insurance on the individual market, the fewer people you will have suffering those gaps in coverage that uh, that come when they get sick, lose their job, and then uh, leave them uninsurable. Another, and as I mentioned before, there's no reason, or, or this, these, these approaches can be entirely budget neutral and revenue neutral. They don't involve any new government spending. They don't require any new tax increases. And of course, and as I mentioned, they would all deliver a large tax cut. And they meet most of the president's uh, goals better, I would argue, than his proposals would. When it comes to cost containment, 
returning all of that $4,000, billion to uh, the control of individual workers and consumers means that they are going to be much more cost-conscious when they're uh, choosing a health plan as well as when they're purchasing care out of pocket. That's going to put a lot more downward pressure on health insurance premiums and health care costs. And, uh, and as I mentioned, those consumers will naturally gravitate toward health plans that practice medicine more efficiently as, as the Mayo Clinic does. It's also going to uh, improve quality in health insurance and healthcare markets. You're going to get much more innovation with health plan design uh, than you would under the president's proposals, which are going to narrow uh, the the ways that insurers can design their health plans because they'll have to comply with the standard uh, or the minimum benefits package requirements uh, that would uh, uh, that would attend any individual mandate or employer mandate. And finally, the the uh, uh, Workers are going to be able to choose coverage that meet their own, that meets their own needs rather than employers' needs, and all of this uh, and the ability to fire their insurance company is going to keep the uh, health plans much more honest than uh, creating a new public plan would. I think that uh, America desperately needs health and needs healthcare reform, but the leading proposals are wrongheaded because they go in precisely the wrong direction. They give Washington more control over our healthcare dollars, our healthcare decisions. They would spend trillions of dollars to expand coverage when that's not what's necessary, and they would restrict uh, competition in uh, private health insurance markets with uh, employer and individual mandates. And by doing things like, uh, to come up with that $1 trillion, doing things like taxing employer-sponsored health benefits, as, as Mike mentioned, would actually tax the very people who need help the most, people with high health care costs who have a hard time affording their insurance. Reforms that give consumers control over their health care dollars and decisions, however, like large health savings accounts, are going to expand coverage. They're going to reduce costs. They're going to improve quality and deliver tax cuts to the very people that the Democrats' proposals would tax. So I thank you very much. And... Uh, Look forward to your questions.